Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. Good morning, Quest. Happy Easter. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Yeah. Woo. Man, that was good, worship team. Ross is going to help me out a little bit today. We're going to tag team this because we've got some baptisms at the end of the service, which is also going to be great. We're, we're going to have, we're having fun today at church, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's Easter is a fun time, especially for pastors who teach a lot. Um, like this is one of those messages. I mean, you already know what we're going to say, so um, we'll just well we're not going to skip to the end. We're we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna preach this morning. Uh, see, Easter is the time that we get to fully celebrate the one thing that pushes past objections. And and I, I love this day of the year because um, there are a lot of people who come to church who don't always go to church. It's like you know the traditional thing. You come on Easter and Christmas, and and so we get to to have an opportunity to engage with something that is really important, really significant. And I just want to encourage you wherever you are on your faith journey today, just keep, keep an open mind, keep an open mind. We're going to talk about how good Jesus is. And, and, uh, because what Easter represents is, is that everything is about Jesus and he offers so much to us that changes everything in our lives. Jesus is that good. That's, that's what we're, we're, we're going to be talking about today. So I just want to encourage you to, um, just to keep an open mind. We're, we're going to start this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open it up and uh, we're going to read the scripture. This is, this is, these are words from one of the most diehard leading detractors of Jesus who turned into a great leader for Christianity. This is from the Apostle Paul and uh, this is what he says about Christ and his resurrection. Verse 12. Now in Christ, If Christ is proclaimed and raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Paul is saying here that the core of Christianity is Jesus. But if Jesus died and he wasn't resurrected, then really what is the point? All of what we're doing even today is in vain. And so this this point of of who he came to be, who he was, and how he was raised is significant. In many ways, known and unknown, the story of Jesus and his resurrection is referenced all of the time. Uh, With the arrival of another Marvel movie... I'm reminded of Josh Whedon, who coincidentally shares uh, my birthday, June 23rd. If you're taking notes and you want to celebrate me, you can do that. Um, Josh Whedon, though, he, he made a name for himself writing several of the original Marvel Avengers movies. Um, and it's curious to me because Josh is an outspoken atheist. He, he's been questioned why he writes about evil and good in the world and describes these heroes who will sacrifice at great costs for the betterment of mankind, yet he himself believes that there is no purpose or meaning in life. This is one of, one of uh, the tweets that he's known for. He says, everything is a drug, family, art, causes, new shoes. We're all just tweaking our Kim to avoid the void. 
Whedon also shared, somebody once asked me if I have anything like faith. And I said, I have faith in the narrative. I have a belief in a narrative that is bigger than me that's alive. And I trust will work itself out. What Joss is really saying is he hopes that there is a story, a universal story that spans our lifetime that's bigger than you or me. And I do think that, that we all want to be a part of the stories that, that Whedon writes about. Not the artsy movies that barely make any, any money, but the blockbuster movies, right, that we go see. Like Lord of the Rings. The author, J.R.R. Tolkien, said he was surprised after the first writing of the story when he found Jesus Christ on every single page of his book. A story about a king that came out of obscurity to rise up in a moment of danger and rescue the people from destruction. Does that sound like anyone you know, right? Or what, what about Harry Potter? I, I know that's, that's hard for me to say. Some people get really uh, worked up when we talk about Harry Potter in church. But here, here's a story. As the story of Harry progresses, you see Harry be evil by taking evil into himself and dying in the grave, thereby liberating others. When J.K. Rowling was questioned uh, where she got her inspiration from, do you know what she said? Jesus. Surprising, Right. What about Frozen? I just watched this one uh, the other day with my daughters. This is the only movies I get to watch these days. Um, Elsa, looking for purpose and meaning. She, she, she uses her gifts, but she uses them in a way that's destructive, leading her sister to choose to step forward and sacrifice her life, finding that true love is what sets you free. Then, of course, there's the Black Panther, great movie. Uh, it's the son of the true king who dies and rises to deliver his people. So where, where do we get this stuff? Why do we keep telling this story over and over? It's because it's our story. It beats deep within us. It's the echo of our past and our future. It's, it's our story. C.S. Lewis, the, the Oxford professor and brilliant author and philosopher, one of the greatest minds of the last century, said it was this idea of a story where a God would sacrifice himself to himself. And that very much and mysteriously moved him. He would say these stories gave him a sense of joy and touched a chord of longing in his heart, except if he read them in the Gospels. He discussed these myths with fellow academic Tolkien, who challenged Lewis, saying, These stories are echoes or memories of the truth God has made known to man since the beginning of time. Promises of hope and redemption. Of God setting things right, this truth eventually led Lewis to believe that Jesus Christ was the true myth, the great fairy tale. I believe that inside of us, we all understand this. We keep being drawn to and telling this great story because at its core, it's true and, and it reveals the incredible goodness of God. Jesus, the Savior who makes all things right by taking evil onto himself through his death and resurrection resonates for many people. And then for some, there's this heart connection. This faith can, can still feel too much like an illusion, a faith that just cushions us from harsh realities of life. But it's true. Let's take a, a further look at how good Jesus is from a historical perspective. When there's unrest, factions in a nation, a charismatic leader often will come along, emerge, and communicate a message that resonates with people, starts a movement, overturns the status quo, and, and then there's this new way of thinking, right? Then after the leader is gone, usually followers will carry on the principles that that leader brought. We see this with Islam. 
We see Muhammad coming out of a cave one day, entering into the history of Arab tribes who worshipped idols, and he shared that God spoke to him through an angel. Spoke to him a message that galvanized the people, turning them from polytheism to worshiping one God, and the nation of Islam was born. In 632, Muhammad died of natural causes, but his followers, his followers said that that's not the end. Just because Muhammad is dead, he, they said, we need to take these teachings and keep moving forward. Right. We see the same pattern uh, in the civil rights movement where African-Americans deserved more and better treatment here in the States. And MLK Jr., he left his career. He moved to the middle of the conflict and he wrote and spoke in a way that galvanized people together. He helped create a nonviolent movement that changed the culture of the United States. When MLK died violently, his followers picked up the burden of his cause and leadership, and they kept his teaching alive. This story makes sense, yet if you try and put this same pattern and and impose it over Christianity, it doesn't work. No reputable historian will say this pattern led to the rise of Christianity. How? Because Jesus never advocated any kind of liberation of one specific group, nor did he start a revolution. When people would try to pit him against Rome, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate couldn't find any charge against him and accuse him of anything uh, regarding a revolution. And and when it came to, to Judaism, Jesus was not about overturning Jewish traditions. He said that the law came from God. What we see in Jesus's message is that it was all about him. Jesus gave incredible ideas, incredible principles. Yes, they were new and they were transformative. Yes, but he didn't ask his followers to trust in those ideas. Instead, he told them to trust in him. He was the focus. When Jesus asked his followers, who do you say that I am? Peter said, I think you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, not only are you right, but you didn't come up with this on your own. When Jesus was baptized by John in the river Jordan, John said, behold, who does anybody know? Did did John say, behold, the one who will tell us about how we can be forgiven? No, he said, behold, the lamb of God, the one who personally came to us to take away our sin. Jesus's message was about himself. It wasn't just about his ideas. He was the center of what he came to talk about. He never called his followers to trust in his ideas. He instructed them to trust in him. He reiterated this message over and over for them before his death. Even when he was told his friend Lazarus was dying, he didn't rush to go get him. And this caused some of his closest friends to go through heart-wrenching pain of seeing their brother die. What did Jesus say to them when, when he saw them? He, he doesn't say, let me explain and give you some principles to pass on to your children. He looked at his friends and he said, I am the resurrection and the life. I'm not going to just tell you about it. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live. The problem with Jesus is that he kept talking about Jesus. Jesus said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So when Jesus dies, what teaching could his disciples pass on? See, their hope died with him. Not like MLK, not like Muhammad, not like some revolutionary leader. 
the disciples couldn't keep Jesus' teaching alive because his teachings were all about him. What were they to do? If he was the Messiah, the resurrection, and the life, how could he be killed? See, after Jesus died, his, his followers didn't know what to do with his claims. See, Jesus was the message. Christianity is not just a way of life. You cannot be a Christian without Jesus. With Buddhism, if you ask, do you need the Buddha, if they're pushed theoretically hard enough, they would admit that it could be anyone who received the truth Buddha received. The system, the the religion, it remains intact. With Islam, if you ask, did God have to choose Muhammad to give truth to, they may say yes, but if they're pushed hard enough to the maximum limits, they'll admit it could have been anyone. But you cannot remove Christ from Christian. As Michael Ramsden says, if you remove Christ from Christian, you just have Ian, and Ian cannot save you. <laughs> Michael Ramsden's really funny. Uh, he, he truly is very smart, and I'm honestly not doing his joke very well, but it, it's, it's Jesus. Move on. Okay. Jesus says the good news, the gospel is about me. Everything you read in the Bible is about me. First and foremost, Christianity is defined by do you know him? Do you have a relationship with him? You cannot get rid of Jesus. So when Jesus died, his followers were confused and and, and most of them abandoned him. What do we soon see in John chapter 20 verses 1 and 2? This is interesting. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. No one assumed the resurrection. Continue reading on, starting at verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb, and both of them were running together. But the other disciple... Outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I want to just a little sidebar here. So uh, the other disciple is John who wrote this book. I love the way that he describes himself in here. But both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Like, ha, 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 ha. I'm writing it. It's my story. Um, (laughs) Verse 6. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw linen clothes lying there, and then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. John says he saw and he believed. Before that, no one believed. Jesus' followers didn't re-engage because of something that Jesus taught. Jesus' followers re-engaged with him because of what they saw. They saw Jesus alive. Later that day, Jesus appears to a group of disciples. It was this empty tomb where they re-engaged with the message of Jesus, not because of his crucifixion, but because of the living Jesus that had risen from the dead. These men who denied and abandoned Jesus became so bold after seeing Jesus resurrected that the book of Acts tells us they preached a simple four-point message and thousands of people came to to know Jesus. Their, Their points are this, you killed him. God raised him, we have seen him, and so now you need to repent and follow him. Simple four-point message. But Jesus, he's, he's so 
He's so good. Jesus connects like none other to the human condition, to our brokenness. We see this most clearly in his execution on the cross. Today, we're not all that surprised whenever we see someone wearing a cross on a necklace or maybe a ring or some kind of jewelry. But back in Jesus's day, that was something that would never have been done. It would have been like wearing a hangman's noose or, um, you know, the electric chair on as jewelry. It's just a, a strange thing. Crucifixion was used only for the worst criminals because it was the worst form of death due to the depth of gore and pain for the Romans. Jesus's death being done in such a humiliating way did not make any sense at all. For Romans, their gods required them to work and earn their approval. And the Roman gods wouldn't have been gods if they were tortured in such a way. In fact, the the first known picture of Jesus is seen in a crude drawing, apparently mocking the death of Jesus. We see a, a human figure worshiping a crucified person with the head of a mule. Jesus' choice to die on the cross continues to be an offense to to so many, such as Muslims, uh, because no God could humiliate themselves in such a way and still be considered God. The depth that Jesus will go to to prove that we don't have to clean up our brokenness, that we don't have to be perfect in order to have a relationship with him is beyond imagination. He who is perfect in every way took our brokenness upon himself so that he could make a clear path to have a relationship with him. There's no need for us to put on a fake face. There's no need for us to, to pretend like we're perfect. We don't have to jump over any moral hurdles in order to know him. The truth is he, he comes to meet us in our brokenness, in the regrettable parts of us. He loves and understands us even in the midst of our brokenness. Jesus is that good. Jesus is so good that his resurrection stands up to intellectual rigor and examination that's worthy of our attention and investigation. And I encourage you, if you've not done any research on the resurrection of Jesus, I encourage you this week to go and do some reading. For some of you who are not convinced of it, I I just, it's, it's so amazing. If you have researched it, you, you probably come across Professor Richard Swinburne, uh, Emeritus Professor of Philosophy at Oxford. Smart dude. Over the last 50 years, he's focused on arguments for the existence of God, and he wrote a book investigating the resurrection of Jesus. With the use of uh, inductive reasoning based theorem, he states that it's 97% probable that Jesus was raised from the dead. He's taken this book, and he's defended his findings all over the world, and it's been scrutinized. Jesus is really that good. We can test and trust his claims. And to make it even better, Jesus claims that it's possible to come to know God. And when we do, knowing him will actually change us. Jesus is that good. Now I'm going to tag Ross in because I've got to get ready for baptism. So you're up. He's great. Love him. Hey, a few years ago, my son, yeah, give him a round of applause. A few years ago, my son spent the summer in Malawi, so when I ran across an article by Matthew Paris, he's one of England's leading atheists, I was drawn to it. He wrote a piece in the Times that reflected on how, having lived as a child in Malawi, 
and now going back as an adult, he saw the impact of Christianity. He wrote saying, as a, a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa. Sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs and government projects and international aid efforts, education and training alone will not do it. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts, he writes. It brings spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real, he says. The change is good. He goes on and says, I used to avoid this truth by applauding, as you can, the practical work of mission churches in Africa. It's a pity, I would say, that salvation is a part of the package. But Christians, black and white, working across Africa, do heal the sick, do teach people to read and write. Only the severest kind of secularist could see a mission hospital or school and say the world would be better without it. He goes on and says, I would allow that if faith was needed to motivate missionaries to help them, then fine. But what counted was the help, not the faith. But, he says, this does not fit the facts. Faith does more than support the missionary. It is also transferred to his flock. This is the effect that matters so immensely, which I cannot help observing, he says. Christians were always different. Far from having cowed or confined its converts, their faith appeared to have liberated and relaxed them. There was a liveliness, a curiosity, and an engagement with the world, a a directness in their dealings with others that seemed to be missing in traditional African life. They stood tall. That's really quite profound, isn't it? That even a leading atheist concludes that rebirth is real, that Christianity changes people's hearts, and that this change is profoundly good. Yes, Jesus is that good. Nowhere else do we meet a God who substantially reveals himself as truth and whose truth connects with our truth, with our reality, with where we live. Nowhere else do we encounter a God who loves us in our brokenness and offers forgiveness that is real, that even a leading atheist concludes the rebirth, the change of heart, is observably real. Everything that came to exist came through God. He made us. When we do that which is wrong in our life, we call that sin, it offends God and it affects us, it damages us, it it creates scars in us, it, it makes us less than who we were meant to be. And we all know that, don't we? The effect that sin has on us leaves us with a challenge. The challenge of every single one of us as a person is we know we are less than we were intended to be, than we could be, than we want to be, than God wants us to be. We know that. There's no doubt. Every one of us knows that. Which is why we work so hard at self-improvement. All these self-help strategies, 10 steps to this or 12 steps to that. We're trying to get back to the place where we were first. But but there's no path back. We can't reverse time and the pain and the scars and the sin from the past. We can't get back to the place that we long to be on our own. See, what Jesus did is He comes to us in a human form, not so we can go back in time, but so that He can make a way forward through the cross. You see, when Jesus was crucified, He places everything that has gone wrong onto Himself. The Bible says He became sin for us. He became sin for us. 
Jesus Christ took on his very being everything that has gone wrong with our life and our world. When Jesus went to the cross, he became all the wrong thoughts, all the bad things done, all the consequences of pain and scars and and hurt our existence in the world. He literally becomes sin for us. Think about that. This God who is perfect, who has no darkness at all, through his physical death, takes all the wrong upon himself into himself. And then through his resurrection, he overcomes and then comes to each and every one of us and offers us new life. Jesus comes to you. He comes to me. Everything that has been destroyed by you or or diminished in you or damaged in you, he says, I am offering you a new life. See, Jesus is not talking about what we were but about who we can become. That's what it means to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus. That's how good Jesus really is. See, Jesus doesn't ask us just to focus on thinking this or doing that or focusing only on those external changes. It can exhaust us. It can destroy us, the pressure of it trying to be good enough, trying to make our thinking everything perfect, which is why external forms of religion, and we so easily get caught up this in the church or in other religions anywhere, which is why external forms of religion can lead us to breakdown and it can actually even feel oppressive at times to us. But a change of heart, that changes everything. It changes everything. And this is what Jesus offers you and me. It actually kind of reminds me of Michelangelo's statue of David. Many many of us uh, have been awed by pictures of great masterpieces online when we've looked at them and other places. And and we tend to get disappointed when we actually see the art in real life because it's much smaller than imagined, right? I mean, the Mona Lisa is, what, about that big? It's it's really tiny, you know, and you think it's just this great big thing. But, But that's not the case with the statue of David. It's huge. I've been warned, though, guys, if you go see this in person, you're going to actually walk away with an inferiority complex, so just just beware. Michelangelo's David of the Bible doesn't disappoint us. It's one of those finest expressions of its type of art. Yet before Michelangelo actually got his hands on this marble, it was considered to be this enormous block of poor quality, useless marble. Two sculptors before him actually went to it and they said, well, if we can chip off some of the stuff or maybe somewhere in this huge block we can actually find some good marble to do something with. And in their process of chipping away, they actually bored a hole all the way through this huge block of marble and found nothing but junk marble. So they just tossed it to the side and said it's not worth anything and it stood there and neglected for years. It's not good enough. Until Michelangelo saw it and because he could see something no one else saw in it. He worked with it. David stands the way he does actually today in this art because Michelangelo had to work around that hole that was bored in the marble by these other guys. He carved out of this throwaway, low-grade, cast-off marble one of the most highly revered statues of all time in the art world. In many ways... That's exactly what the gospel, what Jesus Christ does in you and I when we say yes to him. He takes whatever's there. If you've ever thought about yourself, thought if someone really knew everything about me, 
they'd say, I'm just so messed up and flawed. And you kind of you kind of agree with that. And so you start thinking, well, I've got I've just got too many issues, too many, too many problems. But God, who is far more capable than Michelangelo, is not just able to carve something beautiful out of what is there in your life. He is able to change the substance of who you are, of what is there, and begin to make you into something far more beautiful than you already are. Because in God's eyes, there is no life that doesn't have value because we are made in His image. Even though we sin, which again, literally destroys us, leaving with harm and damage and and scars and memories that haunt us, Jesus comes and makes everything new. As we begin to move towards a conclusion today, let's, let's just ponder the question, is Jesus that good? Is He really that good? And the answer to that question, it all depends upon what does Jesus and His resurrection mean to you personally? One of the best, my favorite things about sports is there's always a chance for this grand end when things look hopeless that can take your breath away in one unexpected moment, right? That's, maybe that's why fans revel in the incredible times and finishes to games. I've seen, you know, we've all seen the ninth inning comeback play out many times in various sports, baseball, all the other sports. That, that's what we actually saw earlier in the drama, right? Uh, recorded of a young teen who could see Jesus die and not despair like other people because she knew Jesus always bats last. See, Jairus' daughter experienced it, and so can each and every one of us. Just when we think darkness is going to take over and Jesus is going to come in in the last minute, and I, I've seen people with cold, hard hearts who people had just never thought would ever change see their hearts soften. I've seen joy return where there was just this depth of despair. I've, I've seen love replace hate, acceptance replace rejection, wholeness replace the shatteredness of people's lives, and healing replace sickness in people's lives because the remarkable happens because Jesus is alive today, here, now, with us. Every time we convince ourselves that we've got the final draft of our story written. This person, Jesus, comes along and we so often have to do a total rewrite. Something happens that takes our words away, that takes our breath away. Something we didn't see coming happens. We may have thought our story was written, but Jesus looks over each one of our shoulders and says, there's going to be a different outcome. I've got a different plan. And not even death for Jesus is final. It's not the final out. It's actually just the first pitch of the next game. Which means that even in our desperation, even when we're suffering with the grief of loss, especially in the suffering of the grief of loss, Jesus bats last. Jesus gets the final say. You know, look around the world. There are millions of people this week celebrating a Jewish carpenter who spent three short years in public ministry, never traveled far from home. And yet today, one-third of our world's population gather in His name, lifting their hands and dedicating their lives to Him because of His wise teaching? Well, His teachings in life, they're certainly wise. No, but they dedicate their lives. Christians in the Sudan and Iran and North Korea, they don't die for principles and wisdom. 
They die for a person they know. God Himself. Jesus, who is alive and present in their lives in a real, tangible, powerful way. There is no plausible reason for this huge following around the world except for what happened on Easter. Jesus is alive. And I want to invite you today to what's been offered for 2,000 years. If you're here today and you're a person who you've kind of been around the fringes of faith, maybe you do faith on your own, maybe you're here every now and then, but for faith for you, it's, it's about morality. It's a great way to raise your kids. You know, I mean, it is a great way to raise your kids. Your kids are going to learn morality. They're going to learn goodness. I was listening to an interview yesterday on the news about that, and they, it's just proven it's just the reality of life that, that yeah, church is a great place for, for morality and growing in that. But you know what? If that's all church has ever been to you, if that's all faith has ever been to you, you're missing the whole point. There is so much more that God wants to do in your life. He wants to take the heartache and turn it to joy. He wants to take the fear and turn it to peace and happiness. He wants to take the anxiety in your life and show you a way through it. He wants to be a God who is personal and powerful and real in your life. And that's actually what we get to celebrate in just a moment now when we're going to baptize six people. And honestly, if you're here today and you're saying, I want that, I have been around it, I know what you're saying, Ross, I believe that's true and I've never taken the plunge to say, yes, I'm going to do that, then I want to invite you to consider just joining us in the tank in a minute and saying, I'm all in. I'm going to move beyond a morality. I'm going to move beyond good works. I'm going to say, Jesus, I am going to follow you and I'm going to let you change my heart and change my life. And you can do that right now. We're going to begin baptizing right away. So families, if you're here of one of the people being baptized and you want to come on up, come on up right now. You can just head right back there. Uh, they'll be there in the tank in just a minute. And, and uh, if you're here today and you say, I want to be a part of this, I want my life to count for something, I want to know Jesus in that way, and you're ready to make that decision, then I'm going to be standing down over here and I want you to come just talk to me and we'll, we'll, we'll talk you through it, we'll pray you through it, we'll get you up there and, and you know, you're only going to have to be wet for a few minutes until you drive home. And uh, we've got towels even for you, so you, you, you're going to be good with that. We've, come on, let's just stand now and let's, let's begin to worship. Lord, we thank you that you change lives. We thank you that you do more than teach us good teachings and morality. You do more than just giving us the pressure of knowing what we do wrong and God, we already know that. Instead, you come to us and you give us the chance to say, God, I do know that. And I need you. And then your life, your spirit comes in and you help us and you change us from the inside out. So Lord, as we worship, would you just help us celebrate with these that are making the decisions today? And Lord, would you continue to touch all of our hearts that we would walk in your resurrection power this week, today, in Jesus' name, amen. One day, as Jesus was teaching and healing the sick, an important man named Jairus came to Jesus desperate. He was a ruler of the synagogue in the area, not the kind of man who should be pursuing Jesus. But Jairus' daughter, well, she was horribly sick, not well at all. Something beautiful and profound was about to happen on that day. Listen as that very daughter of Jairus tells the story. 
I was so hungry. All I wanted was a cup of water and some of my mother's stew. But I couldn't figure things out well enough to even form the words. But that man, the one I hadn't seen before that day, he told my little sister to get me a cup of water. And for the second miracle of that day, she actually did what she was told without arguing. My father, he didn't want me here today. But when I saw him, it all came flooding back. But my father, he's the type of man who's used to getting his way. At the family shop, he rules the roost. And at the synagogue, people does what he says without questioning. But at home, between my little sister, mother, and I, he's outnumbered. He's good-natured about it, but he's always complaining how there's never any quiet and how the house is always overrun by ribbons and perfumes and pretty fabrics. But deep down, I know he loves being able to provide those things for us. But when the fever struck me the year before last, my father sat at my bedside for four days swabbing my head with cool, wet cloths. He sent my sister to get the physician, but he said there was nothing they could do for me. By the third evening, I was so weak. I couldn't open my eyes, and I couldn't speak. But my father, he just sat at my bedside, mopping up my sweat and singing and whispering, Be strong, my sweetness. Be strong. But I couldn't be. There was no strength left. The sickness was too strong. It was burning me up from the inside out. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't see. I couldn't speak. And then I died. Funny, huh? Nobody should actually be able to say that. I shouldn't be able to say that I remember dying, but I do. It was like being trapped in a deep pit that was collapsing in on me. Pressure, heat, darkness, and then nothing. But then, and this is the confusing part, then I felt someone pick up my hand. And I could feel the warmth of their hand, even though I knew mine was lifeless and cold. And somewhere in my dead mind, I knew I shouldn't be feeling anything. And I knew I shouldn't be thinking that I shouldn't be feeling anything. But it was a spark of awareness. It just shouldn't have ever been. It was the most baffling thing I could ever imagine ever feeling. And then I heard him. At first, it sounded like a voice coming from another room, muffled by distance. But then he spoke again, and he said, Little girl, get up. Well, at first, honestly, I was a little annoyed, because since the time I was nine, I hated being called little girl. And by then, I was almost 13. But that annoyance quickly burned away by that spark of awareness. It started as a flame and then an inferno. And then I opened my eyes and before I knew it, I was sitting up and then I was standing up 
And before I could put together what had happened to me, my mother and father, they were wrapping their arms around me. And my mother was praying and thanking Yahweh. And my father, he just kept repeating, my sweetness, my sweetness. And that's when that man, the one I hadn't seen before, sent my little sister to get me a meal. Ever since that moment, my father has kept me by his side whenever possible. He even took me to see the teacher preach on the hillside not long after the day I died. I remember watching the people come to the hillside and looking at them. And I consider myself a true expert on what it's like to be dead. And some of those people, they were just as dead as I was in every way except physically. But I watched, and after they heard him preach, and after he fed them, something was different. That spark of awareness that I had felt, it was in them. Not yet an inferno, maybe not even a flame yet, but it was in their eyes, and it was in their conversations. It made me so happy. But today, my father wanted me to stay home. He didn't think I'd understand, but I think I understand better than he does. That man is holy and perfect and good. But a man who goes around spreading fires like that, he makes people nervous too. He makes people nervous who have been trying for too many years to hold that fire under control that have been keeping it too cool and too dim, that it lets darkness creep in. Those people had their way today. They crucified him. I watched as they pierced a nail through that same hand that pulled me out of that pit. I thirst, he said. And I wish more than anything I could have sent my little sister to get him something to drink. If anyone deserved it, it was this powerful, compassionate, miracle-working man. But they just shoved a sponge full of vinegar in his face instead. My father, he broke down and sobbed. He would have thought that I would have too. After all, I know what it's like to be in that pit when it collapses in on you. I know what it's like to watch the light fade to dark and to be overwhelmed by the shadows of sorrows. But I didn't weep like the others. You want to know why? Because I know that a fire can spread. And I know that even when it looks like it's gone out, the embers can burst back into life. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, 
or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at gotoquest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.